Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. It's Thanksgiving across the country, and as we kick off today's show, I want to take a minute to let you know how grateful I am for you and for all the incredible guests who join me here in this space. I am deeply thankful for the story shared here, and this week is, of course, no exception. Here's what's coming up. Truth and Reconciliation Day has passed and orange shirts have been packed away for another year. This does not mean we can move on, though. Only 10 of the 94 calls to actions from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission have been addressed, which means activism needs to be less performative and more constructive. Samantha Krishnapile from On Canada Project joins me to share what that should look like. Thanksgiving will not be a happy occasion for over a million Canadians this year as inflation forces more and more people to seek relief from Canada's food banks. Food insecurity and hunger is at an all-time high and food banks are stretched to help support soaring demand. Kirsten Beardsley, CEO of Food Banks Canada, wants all Canadians to know that food alone will not solve hunger and food insecurity in Canada and shares how we can all get involved to help our neighbours and communities. Anne Brody pops in with enough new entertainment to get you through a long weekend and the anticipated turkey coma. Lena Dunham is back with a new show she wrote and directed on Amazon Prime called Catherine Called Birdie, which Anne says is a triumph of innovation and imagination. House of Hammer on Discovery takes a look at the family legacy of violence, abuse, drugs, and murder over generations in one of the world's wealthiest families plus the Lincoln Project on Showtime, which takes a look at the fastest-growing super PAC in America as they take on the task of saving democracy and defeating their own party's sitting president. Midlife can be a crisis for some and a time of release for others, and all of that depends largely on your mindset going into it. Jennifer John from the Sacred Space Coaching pops by with some tips on moving through this time of life with intention and purpose so that you can write the best next chapter of your life. Who doesn't want to be a badass? Jennifer Cassetta wants to help you achieve that goal with her new book, The Art of Badassery. Unleash your mojo with wisdom of the dojo and lays out how you can attain black belt status in your life with this easy to follow self-help book that helps you harness the wisdom, tools, and tactics Jennifer learned on the dojo mat. Finally, Vanessa Vicaria, who is half of the rock duo Goodnight Sunrise, stops by to discuss their latest single, One Pill, before we play it for you in its entirety. It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. and bravest and boldest and best and yet where in your history books is the tale of the genocide 
Truth and Reconciliation Day is important, there is no doubt, but true reconciliation will require our sustained attention all year long. My next guest has some tips to keep us all moving in the right direction. Samantha Krishnapillay, founder of On Canada Project, aims to bridge information gaps on today's big issues by inviting people into critical conversations about the future of our country and the world. In the third of five interviews with What She Said, today we're taking a look at truth and reconciliation as a daily practice. Welcome back, Samantha. Thanks so much for having me. So truth and reconciliation just passed. And I mean, I was listening on the radio all day to stories. I was seeing people in my feed wearing their orange shirts. That's great. But you know, as a society, we tend to shift quickly and move on and we're on to the mm-hmm. next thing. That's not how this should be working. So let's talk about it. Tell me about your thoughts on the orange shirt. Yeah. So before we jump into the orange shirt, the first thing to remember is that colonialism isn't over. Like it's not something that happened a long time ago. It remains really embedded in the legal, political, and economic context in Canada today. So what that means in practice is that the same values that allowed for colonization to happen, for residential schools to be created, for genocide to be committed across this landmass, all of that is still embedded within our legal, political, and economic context in Canada, even if not all of us are clued into that properly, and even if it's not as aggressive as it was back then. So that's why just having a day for national, like, remembrance of truth and reconciliation isn't enough and why we need to keep doing it all the time. Something that we always say in our content is that wearing an orange shirt doesn't magically make you an ally. It's not even the beginning of what needs to be done, though it is an important way to signal to family and friends that you were taking this seriously. So if you wore an orange shirt, I'd ask you to think about what your next steps now are going to be, given that you do care about this enough to wear it. I think one of the things that we talk about on our grid is how do you show that allyship after September 30th? And I think it's about thinking about what issues you care about and how to center Indigenous voices in those issues. So with You know, if you care about climate crisis, if you care about systemic racism, if you care about houselessness, if you care about wealth inequality, caring about those issues while still centering Indigenous voices and leadership um, is a great way to practice what your orange shirt means. Yeah. And, and, you know, on your on your grid on Instagram, you do have uh, some things you can do beyond the orange shirt, you know, like emailing your MP, keeping their address saved so you can keep the pressure on, keep following up to make sure. Uh, these are all great tips. I want to talk a little bit, though, about something you talk about on, on your grid. And one of it is it, the words you use are Indian fatigue. Can you expand on what that is and what that means? Yeah, so the term was first um, introduced to me by my friend Brent. He's the chief of the First Nations in Ontario called Serpent River. And it's like we always go quote unquote Indian fatigue, but it's this idea in which um, how quickly we move on from Indigenous people's stories if they end up making the news at all. Um, And honestly, we see that with so many social issues that affect marginalized communities. Uh, For example, you know, like what had happened After we posted Black Squares, I'm still not completely sure. But essentially, something happens that makes people care. It makes people care about Indigenous justice in this case. uh, And then it's all of a sudden gone. And we just don't hear it at all afterwards. That's, I think, quite exhausting for the people from that community. And in our post, we talk about how 
asking people to share their trauma, share what they've lived through, and then like ignoring them the next day is quite harmful. And that's often what happens on National Day for Truth and Reconciliation uh, or, you know, now Canada Day, like stuff like that. We, we bring attention to this issue um, and we get people to share, you know, what their lives were like on a reserve, what, what's been going on in their, it, for their families, what, you know, tell us about stories about your grandparents at residential schools. And then we're like, thank you so much. And we don't talk to them again for another 365 days. And I think that's really messed up and it's centering the people watching the news versus the people experiencing it, which is a mistake. And let's talk about the media's responsibility in this then, because what you're saying is, you know, people rush out to find guests for that day and then we can't find anything about it. We don't see headlines anymore. There's no, there, you know, and there are a number of things that the pressure should be daily. So can you share some of those? Yeah, well, one of the things that I would love to see happen is continued focus on the 94 calls to action and how nothing's getting really done. I know the big piece of criticism we hear when we say that is people say Trudeau has done more than Harper, but doing more is not doing enough. And what I feel like we should be doing is embedding Indigenous justice into all of the issues that we want to talk about. So, for example, if you're talking about the climate crisis, you can't talk about it without centering Indigenous voices. Um, they're, they're super connected in how they show up. If you're talking about um, mental health, Indigenous people have some of the highest rates of mental health uh, issues because of the trauma that they've experienced and uh, the human rights violations that they're still experiencing. When you talk about mental health crisis in Canada, talking about that, uh, it's keeping that conversation going beyond just National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And to be honest, if it was up to me and we could have, you know, ongoing coverage centering Indigenous voices throughout the year, I think on National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, we should be asking our elected officials to tell us how far they are getting on each and every one of these calls to action. Because what these calls to actions generally represent are gross violations of human rights. Like our government is violating human rights. And because it's not happening to every single Canadian, it's not happening to every white person, we're ignoring it. I want to talk a little bit about um, what it means then to be an active ally. My feeling is that people people are, are good. We are overwhelmed currently with ongoing crises around the globe and at home. And people sometimes just, it's that freeze mentality. I don't know what to do. How can I help? So what are some actual steps people can do to ensure that the pressure remains on the government, that the media centers Indigenous voices, and that we move towards true reconciliation and we are not exhausting our Indigenous communi community with these ridiculous requests once a year. Yeah, so one of the things that I'll start by saying is like, keep showing your allyship. Um, it doesn't matter if you care about it, but do nothing about it. So keep talking about it, keep sharing content about it, keep asking questions about it throughout the year. If it feels tiring to do that, good. Like that's solidarity and allyship is not supposed to be comfortable. It's supposed to be something you do that's more than not for yourself. It's for somebody else. Like that's what On Canada Project does. We talk about this throughout the year. The other thing I would say is talk to your employers. Uh, they have purchasing power. They have the ability to make decisions. Ask them how they practice truth and reconciliation beyond the email they send on National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Ask them who they're hiring who they're buying from, who their vendors are. Um, ask them to try doing business differently uh, to include Indigenous 
organizations and putting money back into those communities. If you're in school, you know, it's asking people to attribute teachings from that are Indigenous people's teachings to them properly. And it's keeping the pressure on your elected officials throughout the year by asking questions. So when you're, if you're seeing a news conference of a politician talking about how much he cares about climate justice and how much we need to change the way we're doing it, ask him if he supports the pipelines that are being put up across the country. Um, if you see someone talking about access to uh, housing, ask them what they're doing about communities that are unhoused. Uh, particularly Indigenous peoples. Keep bringing it up. Don't stop. Because when we put pressure as like everyday Canadians across this country, uh, it forces the media, it forces our employers, and it forces um, our government to actually take action seriously um, and less performatively. Exactly. I mean, these 94 recommendations and only 10 have been done uh, is scandalous. And, and we need to be continuing to put the pressure on to make sure that we are getting through this really uh, extensive list of, of things to to move towards true truth and reconciliation. Uh, Samantha, thank you so much for joining me. You uh, shared a lot on your Instagram recently about Truth and Reconciliation Day. So I encourage everybody to go over to On Canada Project on Instagram to get caught up and to read these actions they can take. Uh, you're going to be back next month and thank you so much for joining me today this was great thank you for having me profiting you my country is all thy people you're dying more with candace sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 the region Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. As Canadians get ready to gather for the first normal Thanksgiving in three years, Food Banks Canada is reminding us that food insecurity and hunger is at an all-time high, with food banks across Canada stretched to help support soaring demand. Kirsten Beardsley is Food Bank Canada's new CEO. Passionate about ending hunger in Canada and helping lead Food Banks Canada's response throughout the pandemic, Kirsten is now on a mission to help Canadians realize that food alone will not solve hunger and food insecurity in Canada. And we can all get involved to help our neighbors and communities right now. Welcome back to the show, Kirsten. Thank you so much for having me. Can you expand for me, please, and explain what you mean when you say food alone will not solve food insecurity? Of course. So it's obviously critical that food is shared with folks who don't have access to what they need. Um, the healthy, nutritious meals they, they're going to share with their families. Um, but at the end of the day, what's causing food insecurity in Canada um, and what we're seeing is a soaring number of people needing food banks Underlying this is not a lack of food. We have enough food in this country. What's underlying the soaring rates of food insecurity is poverty and it's low incomes. And right now, of course, it's that high cost of living where people simply can't stretch their dollars um, to put food on the table for their families and are turning to their communities in need. And so what we need to address these underlying uh, root causes of food insecurity is as policy solutions. We need to address poverty in this country. 
And we really, quite frankly, need to decide that it's not acceptable that this number of people are going hungry in our country. People who are not struggling with food insecurity right now, I know they hear these things and they think, well, what can I do? You know, I mean, aside from donating food at, you know, the grocery store at the checkout or, or donating to the food bank, are there letters we can write? Do you have a letter already sort of pre-written that people could sign? Where should people go? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, what I like to say is uh, thank you to everyone who supports their local food banks. And I'm not here to suggest that that's not needed. Right now, food banks are seeing the highest level of need in our history, in our 40 plus years in Canada. This is the toughest time. So please, if you're in a position to support, it is critical, especially as we head into the holiday season, um, to support your local food bank. That said, what we really need also are people to care about this issue. We need people to educate themselves. So if you go to foodbankscanada.ca, learn more about how prevalent hunger is and when it should be an election issue. So we know, I know there's a lot of municipal elections right now. Housing is a municipal issue. Housing is the number one cost uh, for folks right now, and it displaces food. So when you've got to pay rent um, and you want a roof over your head, you're going to pay your rent at the expense of your food budget. And so it should be part of the conversation and pushing elected officials um, to care about it, no matter which government and which level. I think it is, um, you know, I say it's a collective shame of, of Canada that we have this number of people relying on food banks every month. What we are seeing is a 20% jump uh, last year over the pre-pandemic. We know there's a massive increase this year as well. We'll be releasing some of that information in the coming weeks. But it's over, it's, it's 1.3 million visits to food banks every single month. That means, and, and you know what I, when I say the numbers, what I want people to remember is that those are people behind those numbers. This is people in your kids' schools, in your um, community organizations, your neighbors. Um, and it's also not just about what's happening today. When you've got kids who are chronically going to school without um, a meal in their bellies, they're not in a position to learn all that they need to learn. They can't join sports teams because they don't have the energy. This is about all the things that we need to make our country thrive. And obviously, we all need food to thrive. And it's the future that we're all depriving ourselves of, um, the possibilities that we're all depriving ourselves of if we don't have everyone in this country having access to food. So the numbers are shocking and alarming. And yet what, what I want people to hear from me is that there are real human beings behind all of those numbers. I was in Winnipeg recently and we were answering the lines for people calling in to make appointments for the food bank. And I, I was so, it was heartbreaking. There was a mom who, um, you know, she, she said, I'm just so embarrassed that I'd have to do this. It was heartbreaking, but obviously she was making the right choice for her and her family, but no one wants to go to a food bank, which is why we really need to address the under, those underlying causes. Yeah, you know, just even mentioning that, I can feel the tears stinging in my eyes because I hate yeah. the thought of people suffering like this right now. And it sounds very hopeless, but there is hope. And I know that you always come to the table with some hopeful news and messaging about this. So if you could share a little bit of that before we close out. Absolutely, there is hope. There are food banks in every corner of this country. And for me, what the magic of food banking is that it creates a place for communities to come together. 
it creates a place for people who have a little bit more to share that with people who are struggling. But also food banks are a movement. We we have never um, taken our eyes off our responsibility, not only to feed people today, but to advocate for real change so that we can build the Canada that we all want to see where everybody across this country has access to food. So I invite everyone to join us. We um, advocate all levels of government to make that change uh, possible. And I really, truly believe I couldn't do this work if I didn't think change was possible. And um, actually that we're going to we're going to be successful. I know that we can solve hunger. I know that we can build um, a Canada where no one goes hungry. And I just invite everyone to join us on that ride. Well, you are absolutely the right person leading the charge on this, Kristen. So thank you so much for joining me. I want people to be able to find out more. So just one more time, the website and the social channels, please. Sure. We're f- we can find us anywhere at foodbankscanada.ca. And you can also go to foodbankscanada.ca um, uh, and uh, find your local food bank if you want to get more involved locally. All right. Incredible. Thank you, Kristen, so much for everything you do. Oh, thank you so much for having me. They just don't mix, leave the bottle or me behind. And don't come home a drinking with loving on your mind. It's the long weekend, so it's the perfect time to get caught up on some new entertainment. And joining me now with what you don't want to miss is Anne Brody. Welcome, Anne. Hello there, Candace. Nice long weekend. And my top recommendation is on Prime Video. It's called Catherine Called Birdie. I might not have gone to it. It's about a 14-year-old living in 1320 uh, or 1230, one of them. It's by Lena Dunham. Now, she doesn't appear in it. Oh, my God, the imagination, the innovation. So here's this girl. She's 14, played by Bella Ramsey. And her father is uh, desperate to marry her off because he's run out of riches. And he's a lord. And he has a huge staff. Um, So... (laughs) He brings in all these suitors from afar to come and woo her. One of them's Russell Brand. She uh, gets rid of him. Um, and so four or five come along and she gets rid of them all. But she can't escape when he decides that she must marry a guy called Shaggy Beard. And he looks like he smells and he looks like his name. So she's not happy with this. Now, this is a very independent-minded girl. Back in the day when marriages were arranged and there were strict rules for girls. So she goes out, she plays and dances and carries on and gets into trouble constantly. But because of her incredible wit and charm, she's very likable. And and she's so sarcastic. Uh, So, but I think what got me most is how on earth did Dunham become so interested in medieval Britain? She's clearly done a lot of research and she knows a lot. Uh, It blew my mind. So, you know, it's a definite Catherine called Birdie. Yeah, it, it, the, the trailer was completely charming. And that time period, uh, I'm fascinated with as well. One of my favorite books on earth is the the pillars of the earth. And that is based on that time period. Uh, So I'm totally into seeing this now. One of the ones you had on your list here was House of Hammer. That looks scandalous. 
Oh, dear. Do you remember? He was a huge star a couple of years ago. Huge star. He'd done Call Me By My Name. He was great as the Winklevoss twins in the social network. And then word came out from a couple of his victims that he had a very strange sexual proclivity, including um, the Japanese art of tying women and hanging them from the ceiling and blah, blah, blah. I won't get into it too much. Oh, but I will say he also had a, a desire for cannibalism. So these women came forward. He was, that's it. Done. He's he's out of the business. He's his parents, the very wealthy Hammer family from Occidental Petroleum, have cut him off. And, and I hear that he's working in the Cayman Islands as a timeshare seller. It has the interviews with these women, absolutely chilling. And you, they knew that they were being treated badly, but they couldn't leave him for some reason. He he would call them hundreds of times a day to find out what they were doing and where they were and made their lives. They were his slaves. Yeah. No choice. No end in sight. Apparently, this kind of behavior goes back generationally in his family. Now, his cousin, Casey, wrote a book all about it. After this came out, she was not surprised in the least. It's not a laugh a minute. <laughs> From that documentary onto another one on the Lincoln Project, this one I'm keenly interested in because I actually was following the Lincoln Project since they their inception. So was I. Uh, yes. So watching the whole thing, I, I'll be, I'm curious to see it in the documentary now. Well, um, yes, they gather these people to to bring down Trump, ex-Republicans, very powerful, smart, smart people. Um, and it's, it's pretty intense. They go to this out-of-the-way uh, center to, to build their campaign. They literally leave their lives in the past for a long period of time. And they focus only on on databases and and putting out devastatingly bad ads against Trump. And they carried on for us, you know, people who couldn't vote but were watching very closely. And of course, for the American future. They were they were successful, but there were also problems within. So it goes into all of that. Um and but I just hope they're standing by for 2024, just in case. I th I think they are. Uh, you know, I still follow them uh, on Twitter. All of the original members, um, and yeah, they are they are still very determined to save America uh, and keep the democracy there. Uh, last and not but not least, we only have a few seconds left. But I just wanted to touch on Hello Jack because that looks like a really. At first, I thought it was this campy, like they're making fun of something, but it's a kid show. No, no, it's wholesome. It's full of heart, and I think with a little experience, Jack McBrayer from Thirty Rock could be the next Mister Rogers. It's it's for children. He he looks at children and the acts of kindness that they do. He rewards them with a bird making bird feeder kit. And he gets into their hearts. Uh, it's just wonderful. I thought, you sap. Why are you digging this so much? But I really want Well, because we're starved. We're starved for kindness. We're and that's what this whole show is it. about. So really nice. Exactly. And and honestly, what does it say about me that I mean, at first I thought it was like a sarcastic take. I was waiting for it to get nasty. Well, me I too, Candace. I'm not alone in that. We've been through a really hard time. So, it's been terrible in the world. And Jack Mc Brayer, it's my new hero. <laughs> yeah, it's really sweet. So where is Hello Jack, just for people looking? 
Uh, it's on Apple TV, and I will have my interview with him uh, on the website. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Wonderful. All right, Anne, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Candace. Yahoo! So don't come home a drinking with lovin' on your mind. No, don't come home a drinking with lovin' on your mind. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region. live the second half of your life? That's a question women the world over struggle with at midlife. Jennifer John from the Sacred Space Coaching knows this from personal experience and is committed to helping others struggling to find the answer. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome back to the show, Jennifer. Hi, Candice. Thank you for having me. We're talking about aging a lot lately, but midlife in particular is a crisis moment. Uh, you know, there's the cliche of the midlife crisis, uh, but it's true. There's a lot of truth that comes out in that. There is. I mean, midlife for most people, they want, you know, what's midlife? And really there's there's some mystique to it until you actually get there. And then you realize what it is, but it's those middle years. And it could it can start as early as your late thirties up until you're in your into your sixties. And so those are those middle years where you start to, you, you look ahead and when you're looking ahead, you start to think that there are less years ahead of you than there were behind you. And so that can cause people to have some sort of anxiety. You know, they're they're creeping into that into that new chapter of their life with some dread, some, you know, feeling anxious about what lies ahead um, and feeling almost as if the best years that they've had are behind them rather than ahead of them. And it's funny, you know, I've had some conversations with other women who talk about midlife and, you know, uh, they don't realize they were going through a crisis per se until well after the fact when they're able to reflect on it and say, oh, that crazy behavior was because of midlife. How you perceive those middle years really determines whether or not you're going to experience more of a crisis as opposed to a time of greater happiness, greater fulfillment and satisfaction. And so some go into it and feeling, you know, bouts of depression because you're doing a lot of soul searching or reflecting and they, they hit this stage where they start to feel regret almost of some of the things, you know, life experiences are not having the expectations that they had for themselves. They weren't able to fulfill in their lives, you know, at the time that they believed that they were going to get fulfilled, like getting married or buying, you know, the house that they always dreamed of, or, you know, just, just different milestones that, you know, we have you know, that we put expectations that we put on ourselves or that society puts on us or that we even see in the media. And so not hitting those milestones um, can cause some to, to have some sort of regret, which can lead to depression, times of depression, of doubt, of just frustration and almost a sense of anger of, you know, I'm here now and what now? You know, like there's, there's nothing better ahead for me. And so that feeds again more into that feeling of going through a crisis. I have a very close friend who is going through this right now and feels this incredible resentment building in her. And 
I keep coming back to the conversations we've had over the last year about mindset and how it's so important. For me, I think my midlife crisis, as it were, I was going through a divorce and so on, all these things. I prefer to frame it as a midlife awakening. I feel that I've become a much uh, better person at this stage of my life. How much does mindset play into this time? Mindset plays in heavily into this into this time, like anything else, right? Um, how you perceive something going into it pretty much has a very um, large impact on how you will experience that situation or circumstance. And so, the mindset is very key to have the right sort of mindset of you know, I'm looking, this is a time of transition for me. This is a time of exploration. This is a time of, of me just enjoying more or even, you know, discovering more of myself um, as opposed to dreading it. Um, and it also depends on the certain things that you're going through at that time. For some, like, as you mentioned, it's a divorce. Uh, for others, it's, you know, aging parents. Um, some may be sickly. Um, they themselves may be going through a health challenge. And so it sort of frames the way they view those middle years and going into it that really has an impact on what it is that they're going to experience as they go through it. Right. I mean, and again, it's the whole glass half full, half empty thing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. How are, what are some tips then or some tools we can use to shake the negativity that is attached to a midlife crisis or midlife in general? As you said, one of the important things, again, it goes back to mindset, cultivating the right mindset as you're going into these middle years. Looking at it said, you know what? When you look back over your life, you've gained so much experience. You have so much wisdom. And now you're better armed to go into this next chapter of your life. So if you embrace that sort of mindset that I have something to contribute, um, I have value and I can add value and that what is ahead of me is, is just as productive, perhaps in a different way than the years behind me. We talked about living agelessly. Um, and I think that's an important part of this discussion, because I think when we get to this age, we're watching our physical appearance change so drastically. We live in a world that's just rich with ageism. <laughs> so, yes. um, so what are some of the tools then for living agelessly? I mean, outside of mindset. Um, yes. What can we be chasing to, to shake, to, to, I guess, live fully at this age? Letting go of expectations. Truly the expectations that we may have had, you know, in our, in our twenties and thirties may not fit us or suit us now going into our forties our and fifties and whatnot. And so truly letting go of expectations that no longer serve you. Right. Um, and embracing ones more empowering ones for your future, for this time that you're in right now. Um, youth is something that we're constantly chasing. And, you know, we're constantly wanting to look young and feel young and, and be vibrant. And um, our youth is not necessarily just captured in our physical appearance. It's also a mindset. It's also the way that we choose to live our lives and the way that we choose to venture out in things that are ahead of us. And so if we embrace those things, you know, in a new way, with that new perception, um, we can live more agelessly than we've ever lived before. And this latter part, or not, I shouldn't say latter part, but this new part of our lives would be just as fulfilling and satisfying. I think it's also like shaking some of those things that we're told, like, you know, 
women over 40 yes. can't wear this and oh. you can't wear that. <laughs> can't and... wear things above your knees and shouldn't wear eyeliner on the bottom of your eye. You know, there's, oh, and you know, you know, the whole gray hair, you know, situation. And so you're hearing more and more start, are saying that they're, they're choosing, some are choosing, and it's, you know, every woman has their right and has their, their right choice to choose whether they want to go fully gray or whether or not they want to continue, you know, dyeing their hair or whatever the case may be. And so, you know, you have that and that feeds into the feeling of feeling youthful and feeling young and feeling, you know, vibrant. And so definitely there's so much that plays into it, especially with media and society. And so when I think if you, we start to distance ourselves from these things and basically not compare ourselves to others, but truly carve out our own path for us. What does aging look for us and how can we do it more grace, graciously, gracefully, um, so that we still hold on to feeling attractive and feeling confident and feeling assured of ourselves and not losing that. Yeah, I think as important it is, is to let go of our expectations. It's also important we let go of the weight of other people's expectations exactly. on us. <laughs> it's so true because we can get so easily caught up in that and start comparing ourselves and start, you know, thinking that we're not good enough. We don't look good enough. And that feeds into other areas of our lives, our confidence, our assuredness. So yes, we definitely have to start letting go. And again, letting go of these mindsets, letting go of these expectations, these assumptions that are not serving us well. And all of this ties into getting unstuck. No matter where we are in our life, it's all tied to we can get stuck in a mindset. We can get stuck with our expectations or other people's expectations. So you help people with a 21-day challenge. Uh, how can people join you in that? Because they can jump in anytime. anytime. Right? They can go to Facebook and on Facebook, just search 21-day challenge for the sacred space and you'll find it. And there we have a new challenge, which is living agelessly. And so we welcome it. You're absolutely true because you can end up sabotaging yourself, not only getting stuck, but sabotaging your own happiness because of the expectations we have, because we haven't learned to be live more free. Right. It's, it's brilliant. And it sounds um, like something we should be able to do, but unfortunately a lot of women get to this age and they just don't know how to turn it from a crisis into, you know, something really happy and joyful. So I hope people will join you on the 21 day challenge. As always, Jennifer, great discussion. Thank you so much for joining me and you, uh, you'll be back again next month. Yes. Thank you so much, Candace. It was wonderful being here with you. Whether the opponent is a financial hardship, a difficult boss, being in a manipulative relationship, or emerging from a pandemic, my next guest's new book, The Art of Badassery, Unleash Your Mojo with the Wisdom of the Dojo, teaches readers how to flex their mental muscle, how to rise above fears, and how to reclaim their power. Author Jennifer Cassetta is an internationally recognized motivational speaker and health and empowerment coach with a third degree black belt in Hapkido and a master's degree in nutrition. She joins me now to discuss how to unleash your inner badass. Welcome to What She Said, Jennifer. Hi, Candace. Thank you so much for having me. I normally only have Canadian women on my show, uh, but 
I was approached by your agent and was intrigued with your story. I love it. And uh, so I was sent an advanced copy of the book. I also love the book. What prompted you to write this? Mm, great question. And first, I just want to acknowledge you and thank you for making me an American exception to the rule. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. I'm honored to speak to your audience. Um, I wrote this book because over two decades of teaching self-defense and health and empowerment coaching, um, I was tired of hearing stories from women of being uh, passed over for deserved promotions and jobs. Mm, you know, taken advantage of, manipulated, being in terrible relationships, being in abusive relationships, being verbally, mentally, and even physically assaulted. Um, and I just wanted to help um, people have a framework to walk through that to either deal with those types of things in their past and or to build the inner strength it takes to stand up for themselves in the future. Yeah, I was, I mean, I, I've never really... Um considered taking martial arts in any way, shape, or form. Mm. But I have to tell you, uh, I'm intrigued now because I really like the way you translate what it's like to be on the mat and how that works in your real life. So can right. you give a quick sort of, we don't have lots of time in this, but we do have a podcast that people can go listen to afterwards. But uh, mm. just for the purposes of this interview, can you give sort of the breakdown of what each belt represents in life? Absolutely. So as a white belt in martial arts, you're a pure beginner, you're getting onto the mat, you're doing things that are completely uncomfortable to you, both physically, mentally, and spiritually. Um, so the first chapter is white belt and embracing the suck and really just becoming more comfortable with uncomfortable things and embracing that sucky things are going to happen in life. Uh, no one gets out of this life alive without something or many things that we have to deal with. So that's chapter one. Chapter two is how to bounce back from those things. So there's three strategies I learned, which are how to pivot, roll with the punches, or even make an ultimate comeback when life has knocked you out for the count. Um, the third chapter or belt level is orange belt, which teaches us how to block um, and how that translates in life is about setting powerful boundaries, again, verbally, mentally, emotionally. Or uh, Green Belt is chapter four, which teaches us how to find our spirited yell. A kiop essentially is what we call it in martial arts, but essentially it's your powerful um, form of communication. And we do that through body language, through tone and the words that we speak outwardly and our, more importantly, our inner dialogue. Blue Belt level is where we start to become aware of our chi, our energy, and really how to practice radical self-care. And it's not that radical, to be honest. It's just really taking care of ourselves and our bodies and our mental health so we do have the energy to lead our most badass lives. Red Belt teaches us to go within and start, start connecting with our inner warrior, I like to call her, um, our intuition, our inner guidance, which can help us in so many ways to say, stay safe, for one, but also just to lead us in the general direction of our badassery. And then black belt le level, is, of course, is about leadership and becoming a leader in your own quote-unquote dojo, right? The people that you surround yourself with, the communities that you're involved with. Leadership is for ev everyone and anyone who chooses to step into it. It's not reserved for certain types of people. So that's um, 
And then I kind of just close with making sure that we can all take a stand for women and support each other on this wonderful journey of life. And that is indeed what what she said is all about. Uh, I love that you, uh, you, you know, that last chapter about leading. And you seem to do that just about everywhere. Uh, I've been all over your social media channels, checking you out on YouTube and TikTok and, you know, everywhere. Um, what motivates you? Why are you so invested in, in seeing women uh, embrace their inner badass? Oh, gosh, that's a question that's, I'm just like, where do I begin? Um, again, going through it myself and going, you know, part of the reason I, I started martial arts to get strong in my body, but then I started to realize all of these other benefits that I was getting. I was starting to feel more confident. I was starting to feel more grounded, more on purpose um, to the point where within that first year, I actually decided to like how I can make this a career or weave this into my career as I go along. So I changed careers completely and made this my life's mission. And again, I think when you really are on purpose like that, you start to connect with people who really could use this message. So the more I took a stand on this, on women's safety and women's equality, the more people showed up that really needed to hear it. So that's essentially it in a nutshell. But also, you know, I had some life changing experience happen in that first year of my training. So I, I had to go through it first. It is a powerful book. And I, I love though, it is such an enjoyable read. I, I can't, I can't thank you enough for writing it. I really encourage people to go out and find it. I want people to be able to get the book and keep up with you because you're also teaching self-defense. You're, you know, you're always giving out great messages on social. So where can people do that? On Instagram mostly, but also TikTok is Jen Cassetta to two N's, two S's, two T's. My website's jennifercassetta.com and I'm pretty easy to find. i all right, and the book is available on Amazon.ca and Indigo. Thank you for joining me today, Jennifer. Thank you so much. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region. are closing out today's show with Vanessa Vicaria, who is half of the rock duo Goodnight Sunrise. You may recognize that name as she is often on morning TV as the math guru, but she is also an incredible musician with tons of pizzazz dedicated to speaking to and fixing the issues women and people of color in the music industry face. She joins me today to discuss the story behind the song we're about to play called One Pill. Welcome to the show, Vanessa. Thank you so much for having me. So I've been rocking out to this song all morning, got it on lo loud on Spotify, um, and I need to know the story behind it. So tell me. 
Well, honestly, it's such a, it's a classic musician story, I guess. We had been jamming in 2017 in like our dirty jam space and we just kind of came up with it and we thought, hey, we'll record a voice note. Um, and at the time there were no lyrics or anything like that. We just kind of had the bare bones of it. And David kept saying, this song is going to be something. We need to revisit it. And I was like, who cares about this demo? Like, I don't know. I'm not seeing it. And then in 2020, um, we were writing songs for the new album and David revisited it and he started coming up with the lyrics. You know, we're all just trying to get by everybody on their own supply. And I was like, David, what? That is ridiculous. But the more we played it, the more it grew on me. And, you know, the song has turned into sort of a... You know, it, it's kind of about that idea of we are all, whether you're, you're, you know, drug of choices, social media, Netflix, ac alcohol, cigarettes, coffee, validation, we're all kind of just looking for the next thing to validate us, to make us feel better, to give us that endorphin hit. And we have so much trouble just being in the present that we're really at this point where we're so reliant on external sources for happiness. And I think that's kind of what the song is about. When I say it that way, it sounds really dark and creepy, but it is, it's kind of a, it's kind of a recognition that like, we're all kind of same in the same boat, you know, like it, we're all kind of just trying to make it in this crazy world and whatever it takes to get us there, maybe that's okay, you know, or maybe we need therapy, whatever, one or the other. I well, I have to tell you, I like I said, I'm listening to it on repeat. I love this song. I think it reflects perfectly what we're all going through as a society, looking for that one thing that's going to fix us. Uh -huh. um, you've been busy yeah. on tour all summer. Uh, you continue to tour this fall. Where are you playing next? We are playing next in London. We're opening for Mono Wales October 13th at Rum Runners. There's a few tickets left, so make sure you grab those. And then we'll be hitting Hamilton, Windsor, and Lindsay. Amazing. London, my hometown. That's fantastic. Ooh. Yay. Yeah. Um, so thanks so much for joining me, Vanessa. We're going to close out the show. We're going to play one pill in its entirety for my audience. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me.
previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.